0: Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Osler. It's a Sunday afternoon in December and in my home. to record this podcast in person is my friend Andrew Davis. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Richard. Um, Andrew is going to share his story as a Latter-day saint with same-sex attraction. And um, he is 31. He is single. He has started his own podcast, and we'll link to that in the show notes. The name of Andrew's podcast is Sons of God Conservative Views on Faith and Same Sex Attraction. Um, his professional background is he's a self employed web developer, um, started that business quite a long time ago, and um, there's a lot of growth in that category. So I would guess that's going to be a wonderful career for you, Andrew. Andrew and <laughs> Andrew has a father named Jamison Davis, Uh, maybe goes by Jim a little bit, but Jamison Davis and I were missionary companions back in about 1980 on the Isle of Man, which at the time, and I think currently is part of the England-Manchester Mission, and just a terrific human being. He's a convert to the church, um, grew up Jewish and converted to the church in a really dramatic conversion story. And I'm grateful to have Andrew. So, um, Andrew um, grew up in Connecticut, and I've talked a little bit about his profession. Um, Some would say, you know, this podcast has a range of stories. Some label themselves as SSA, some as gay, Um, and I'm just on letting people label themselves as they choose, and that's their that's. You can be authentic and have whatever label or no label that you want under this umbrella. And I'm trying to support that. And um, this is a probably an underrepresented group of people that have same-sex attraction, deeply committed to church, deeply committed to living covenants, and um, maybe are more silent about being SSA. Would not march in a pride parade. Would not put on a pride flag. And I, and I honor that. And that is an authentic, legitimate path. And probably stories that are unrepresented. So I'm grateful to have Andrew in my home. Um, This is a really brave story as I've looked through his outline um, in his teenage years, really realizing that he has attractions towards men, um, his feelings about serving a mission or not serving a mission. He'll talk about that and he'll talk about his journey in his 20s and more recently. Is that okay for an introduction, Andrew? Yeah, that's great. So, um, we just both pray this will be helpful for you if you're an ally, if you're a parent, and if you're you know in this space, and that's your lived reality, that you're not hundred percent heterosexual, and you're somewhere in this space that the story that Andrew tells you will be helpful for you. So with that, I'll turn it over to Andrew. Andrew:
1: Before I begin my story, I just want to thank you for highlighting the men and women like me who are committed to the church and don't feel alignment with the pride movement, with those sort of things, because there are many of us, and we do feel underrepresented and to be and to be noticed like that um, is is a very sweet and appreciated thing. And I, I know I can speak for my friends um, that I've made along this journey who who feel that way and and, and appreciate. And and thank you for that. So, so um, I guess I want to start with uh, when I was a kid, um, because for me, I feel like my life is a tapestry of experiences that all kind of interconnect and interweave. When I was a kid, I was bullied relentlessly from my grade school years all the way through into high school. I think senior year is when it stopped. And, um, it was just really difficult for me because I tried to be this nice kid who loved everybody and who was happy and people just, they just seemed to hate me. And I didn't know why. And, you know, I wasn't called gay or anything necessarily. I was in elementary school by this one kid, but I don't think he really meant what he was saying because I don't think he understood what he was implying. But I, I just always felt different. I felt like an outsider. I just felt very, very aware that I didn't fit in. I didn't really even fit in with some of the friends I was supposed to have in church. I was just kind of that, that one kid who just didn't get it. And, and that was hard for me because for a very long time, the question in the back of my mind was, what's wrong with me? Why do people hate me? Why do I feel different? Why can't I pick up on social cues? Why do I have such a struggle in making and keeping friends and getting girls to like me back? And so, you know, that is a backdrop. And then along the way, um, in my teenage years, uh, I developed an addiction to pornography uh, and masturbation. And those were my coping mechanisms for stress and anxiety. And I wanted to stop so badly. I had my dad and my bishop both trying to get me to to quit. But at the time, and this was in the early 2000s, we just didn't have a lot of intelligence on addiction and psychology of addiction. And so it was just kind of like I was choosing this thing just deliberately without... Any like emotional or psychological bias, it was just like, oh, he's just doing this because he doesn't really care about the consequences. But I was mortified every time I would have a relapse because I wanted to be clean. I wanted to be ordained to the priesthood like my peers were. But I was late in those different things because I was not worthy. And I, there were times where I didn't take the sacrament because I felt like I wasn't worthy or my bishop told me that I couldn't take it. And, you know, this is, this, this is my teenage years, 14 through 18. And so I just grew accustomed to the feeling of shame. I wasn't worthy. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't in control of these urges and these temptations. I felt really, really bad about myself and about my ability to be a worthy um, son of God. And so along this journey, I would be beating myself up and being really sad, and the spirit would come in and say, you don't need to beat yourself up. You don't need to feel sad. The Lord loves you, and you're worthy of his love, and this is just something that you have to deal with right now. And it was interesting because it would be a little bit in contrast to the things I was feeling, the things I was hearing. So From those younger years, the spirit was really, really there to reassure me about my identity, to reassure me about my worthiness. Even if I wasn't worthy right in that moment, my divine nature as a son of God, as a child of God, that was what counted and he taught me that. So it it wasn't, you know, one day I was able to stop my addiction and everything was great and peachy. It has stayed with me through my whole life. But as I grew older and more experienced, and as the wisdom um, in society started to understand addiction and these types of things more, I started to realize that I was not partaking of a forbidden fruit deliberately without regard for consequences and in rebellion with God. I was a victim of a situation where the only way I felt like I could cope and survive was to act out with these temptations. And that perspective really helped me understand sin, worthiness, and God's love. Because instead of beating myself up and feeling sad and feeling down for days, I would relapse and I would pick myself up and I'd say, okay, this happened, but now it's over. I developed a saying that I like to tell myself sin is a moment, repentance is a lifetime. Where sin is just that momentary surrender of your agency to that temptation. But the whole journey before and after is what really counts. We fall down and we get back up. So there's that. As I prepared to go to school, Everybody went to BYU. Everybody. Except me. I was not able to pass the bishop's endorsement because of my worthiness issues. Wow. And to top it off, BYU didn't like my grades. (laughs) So I had to pick a different school. Well, I wanted to be in Utah. Coming from Connecticut, I was used to trees and that claustrophobia you get when all there is is trees and no open space and you have to be glued to your GPS because there's no grid system. (laughs) I came to Utah once with my father um, to visit uh, Ellis Ivory, uh, his mission president and his family. And I went out in their backyard and I looked around and I saw the city lights and the mountains and the wide open spaces. And I just had the strongest feeling I want to live here in Utah. I want to go to school here. I want to live in Utah, and I don't ever want to go back to Connecticut when I'm an adult. So I looked for schools in Utah, and I decided upon, with some help from some friends, Utah State University, which brought me to Logan, Utah, one of the coldest places (laughs) in the state. Um, But I loved it, because I love the cold and the snow, because I didn't have to drive in it yet. Um, But... At Utah State, I had this social awakening. I was liked by everyone. I was myself, and I just had friends and things to do, places to be, parties, games. I was living my best life. And as I was being more social and more content with those circumstances, the same-sex attraction started to creep in more and more. When I was younger, it was really manifest in just noticing. Not really something that clicked like, oh, I'm attracted to him. It was more like, oh, I could see someone would find him attractive. And I also was a bit effeminate. Um, And I just blamed it on me growing up with three sisters. (laughs) And for some of my peers, that was a good enough excuse. But when I was in college years, that attraction started to grow, and my mental health started to c- decline. My anxiety came, my depression came, and over time, I found the urges of the same-sex attraction to grow stronger and stronger and stronger, to the point where I felt like I was encompassed about by temptation, like Nephi said. And I didn't know what to do about it. It freaked me out because I hated the thoughts that I had about these guys. I felt dirty. I felt like I was betraying them. I felt a deep sense of guilt for having those thoughts. So I decided that I needed to go to the Lord. And I prayed that he would take these thoughts away from me. I literally tried to pray the gay away, but it does not work. I prayed for a long time and just kept it in my prayers. But I never felt like it was a no. I never felt like it was a yes. It was just silence. And so I eventually came to the conclusion that the Lord was not going to take these things away from me. And I came to him in prayer about what I was supposed to do, because I didn't want these temptations and these attractions. I didn't want this fixation on my male peers. I wanted to be free from that. I saw it as a plague, as a challenge, as a, as a trial. So I came to him in prayer, and the answer I got was very comforting. The answer I got was, I am not held accountable for those thoughts. The Lord loves me the way I am, and he wants me to learn to have virtue in my thoughts, and that he would not hold me accountable for these thoughts and these temptations and these urges if I did not decide to act on them. And it it, it was really quite similar to me, the counsel a bishop would give a young man about thoughts about women. You know, don't commit adultery in your heart. And in the scriptures, it says, do not look upon a woman to lust. But for me, it's do not look upon anyone to lust. So I move forward with this understanding that the Lord is not upset with me for having same-sex attraction, but he encourages me, for me and my experience, to not give in to it, not act on it, and understand that it is the same as it is if I had those thoughts about a woman. So with this understanding, I was like, "Well, I still don't like this. <laughs> this is uncomfortable. So what do I do? I decided to go to therapy and not to get, a, get rid of anything, not to, to take it away but to feel more secure in it by understanding it and where maybe it came from. I believe that there's two kinds of gay. Gay by nature and gay by nurture. And I identify myself as, quote-unquote, gay by nurture. The insecurities I had in my childhood, the rough time at home, my dad and I butt heads. I'm sure a lot of guys and their dads do. I just had a lot of these little... Points of paint on the canvas that when I stand back from them, I see, yeah, I can see why there's this need to connect with men in a certain way. So, and again, that's just my experience. That's not this the way it is for everyone. But for me, that that's what I've identified as truth for me and my life. And so going to therapy, I worked through some childhood. Experiences, some insecurities, and some toxicity in my relationships. And I decided that if I could work on those relationships, I could start to heal the parts of me that were hurt and broken. And as I did, those relationships improved and they became miraculously different than they were before. But It did not take away the attraction. And again, I wasn't trying to take it away. I was trying to feel more in control of it. But it didn't quite work that way. The good news was those relationships improved. But the idea that maybe if I could work on those things, I'd have more control over the thoughts in my head. Well, that didn't really pan out. As I started to become more comfortable with the idea that I was experiencing this attraction, I opened up to my oldest sister and I told her about what I was experiencing. And she was very sweet and didn't try and say, oh, well, you know, she didn't, she didn't try to steer me in any one direction. She said she loved me. She accepted the way I was and I shouldn't worry about it. And we joke about guys I found attractive in the restaurant we were sitting at for lunch. It was completely comfortable for her. I, I think she enjoyed it. I think she thought it was funny. And I thought it was funny. And it was great. So I had one family member that I opened up to and could feel comfortable with and could feel safe with. Later on, I opened up to my parents. And this is actually quite funny to me. Um, I explained um, that I had experienced same-sex attraction. My dad doesn't say anything, but my mom kind of cocks her head and she says, are you sure? She's like, didn't quite believe that I knew what I was experiencing. And she's so thoughtful and so like benefit of the doubt. She's like, oh, well, being curious is like different than, I was like, no, mom, I know this is, this is what it is. And that was the last time we really talked about it. And they didn't kick me out of the family. They didn't, um, they didn't treat me any differently. They just understood that that was something that was part of my life. And eventually I opened up to my other sisters and told them about it. One of my sisters was actually a little frustrated with me because she was dating a guy uh, before that had SSA as well. And if, had she known that I had it, she felt like she would have maybe been able to understand him better. So I realized from that point that being open and being comfortable in my own skin and sharing about my experience with SSA can actually bless other people, help other people, and serve a purpose more than just trying to make me get it off of my chest and feel more acceptance, but actually can bless lives and provide understanding. So, as I continued in my life, a mission was something on my mind. My dad served a mission. My older sister served a mission. A lot of my peers have served missions. And a lot of the friends I made in college were gone because they were on their missions. And I was still in Utah. And I just wondered what I was going to be able to do to get out on a mission because I still had worthiness issues, and I was also really, really scared of having same-sex attraction and being in such close quarters with other men as mission companions. And I also had reservations about my anxiety and my perspective on sharing the gospel. You know, for some, it's a numbers game, but for me, it was hearts. And if I didn't baptize someone, but I made their day and I brought them closer to God, that was something that I cared more about than the numbers. And I think that's changed a lot lately. But back then, it was still pretty focused on baptismal numbers and those conversions. It felt more like marketing than missionary work to me. But I also was always someone who liked to do things differently. And that approach might work for a lot of missions missions and missionaries. But for me, I just felt very repelled by it. I also heard stories about men who experienced SSA going on missions and losing their self-control and putting themselves in very compromising positions with their mission companions. And I didn't want to be one of those guys. I didn't trust myself to have Enough self control, or if I did, I didn't like the idea of that sense of slipping from that control. The fear really ruled my faith when it came to serving a mission. Eventually, I felt like the Lord was telling me that He didn't need me to serve a mission, but He was going to have me do something else in my life. It was hard for me to accept that because I don't like not conforming when I can help it. I felt really self-conscious of the fact that I wasn't going to serve a mission and that, and I felt really guilty about it and some shame too. And I would pray about it. And then the Lord would just say, look, I'm not going to ask you, you know, this is your decision. And eventually after about two years, I made peace with it. I understood that for me, it wasn't going to work. I was actually in a, in a um, state conference in a YSA ward where uh, a part of the area presidency came up and gave a talk and he asked us to guess what was the number one reason why missionaries were being sent home. And we we're all like, oh, you know, sexual sin, pornography. And he's like, no, anxiety. And I was like, oh my gosh, that could have been me. I could have gone and then been sent home for anxiety. And wouldn't that have been worse? Feeling like a failure than just deciding for myself with the Lord that it wasn't going to be the right thing for me? It was a hard pill to swallow, but I knew it was right. And I looked forward to learning what the Lord would have me do if I wasn't going to serve a mission. For a change of pace, I moved to Provo. I lived in Logan from 2011 to 2014, and I decided I want a change of environment, and I wanted to try something new. So I moved to Provo, and I lived there, and it was very different. (laughs) Logan people are down to earth and vulnerable, and there's just a different spirit to people. But in Provo, people are more worried about appearing imperfect. I don't mean to be insensitive. But if someone was having a bad day, they wouldn't tell you. They didn't want people to worry about them. They were so self conscious. This is my experience with so many different people. I thrive off of connecting with other people's vulnerabilities. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us spirits going through this experience, learning humility, going through trials that allows us to connect to each other and serve and love each other. But no, these peers. They they could not be vulnerable. It was everything had to be exactly a certain way. But they were so kind and so spiritual. And it was wonderful years of my life. And when they heard that I hadn't served a mission and wasn't planning to, I didn't get the judgment I expected. Provo has a bad rap, but the people were incredible. And I didn't get that judgment. They just said, Oh, you don't have to tell me why. I I get it. It's okay. And that was really cool. It was really cool to be told, Oh, you didn't serve a mission? Oh, well, we like you. Stick around, you know? So I live in Provo, and the attractions were still there, and they kept, they still were just unbearable because it was just all of this energy focused on this, this urge, and there was nothing to, to do about it. And, you know, I, I met a friend in my ward who also had SSA and I was just really excited to meet someone else who had SSA, who was a member and who was still, you know, active in the church. And, um, and we had a really good connection and, you know, I gave him priesthood blessings and I hung out with him here and there, and we just kind of supported each other in our journey. It was the first time I really felt like I could connect to someone like me, and it was really good. And then um, moving on from Provo, I'm just going to look at my outline, make sure I didn't miss anything. You're doing a great job. Andrew. Thanks. You just get to talking so much, and you just kind of lose track of where you are. Um. Oh yeah. Well, along the way, in my in my young adulthood, you know, I started getting used to because I didn't want to tell other guys that I had SSa, but I was totally comfortable telling girls I had SSa. Kind of made me feel like I had like this special superpower. Like I watched chick flicks with them and talk about boys with them, and I could be way good friends with them compared to straight guys. And I would tell them, I wouldn't say I am gay or I am bi. I would say I'm attracted to both women and men. And that's how I phrased it with them. And as I opened up to more of these friends of mine who were the girls, I felt a little more comfortable with myself because letting them know kind of felt like it was taking that, a little chunk of that self-consciousness and that shame away from me. So, um, having decided that I didn't want to serve a mission, And that I wasn't going to, and understanding the Lord had a plan for me that was going to be different than a traditional mission. And and I was okay with that because I also wanted to make my whole life my mission and not try and compress Christ-like service into two years. Because I didn't want to ever lose that light and that conviction. i would seen so many, you know, missionaries come home and just kind of fall off the face of the earth after their mission. And I didn't want that to be me. So, um, oh yeah, <laughs> that's great. So, I, uh, I, I went through my young adulthood in Provo and Logan, and I still had this sense that there was something wrong with me because I still had mental health challenges. I had anxiety, had these attractions, just felt a lot of things that weren't right, were weren't correct. I was in a meeting once where a brother put his hand on my on the inside of my arm, say, hey, how you doing? And it traumatized me. I was scared of him because he touched me. And I'm like, well, that's not normal. So I need to figure that out. So I'm just working through all these different things and I start to recognize that I have some sensitivities to things. Sudden, loud, high pitched noises really, um, raucous crowd noise, I'd find myself at, uh, church activities in YSA leaving the ruckus of the activity, going into the chapel in the dark and playing the piano. And I didn't realize it until this year as I've been working on it, but it was because I was overstimulated by all the noise and I needed to go and recharge and have some quiet time. Eventually, I self-diagnosed myself with Asperger's, mm. uh, very high-functioning autism, and they doesn't exist anymore. I'm on the spectrum, is all I'm allowed to say. But I, if it was still allowed to be used, the word is ospers. And it, as I, it, it was actually quite funny because I hated fire alarms, like hated them because i hated the noise they made and i was afraid of them going off there was a time in my life where i had nightmares about fire alarms going off and i'd wake up and i'd duck under my pillow and i'd plug my ears not the greatest thing to do when a fire alarm's going off but that's what i did and later i decided that i was going to see if there was anyone else who hated fire alarms just as much as i did and i went onto a forum from a google search and people were talking about Asperger's and autism like oh my gosh. And I looked up the the conditions and the signs of having ospurs, and they matched me perfectly. And so for once in my life, for the first time in my life, I didn't feel like there was something wrong with me. I felt like there was something about me that other people understood, that it was something that was just there and other people experienced it, and it was okay. Because it wasn't something wrong. It was just something that I was experiencing as well. And so through that journey of learning about Osperger's, I learned how to take care of myself, my sensitivities. And I learned how to be patient with those sensitivities and not get upset at myself for not feeling normal. And I made my therapy a focus on those sensitivities and those triggers and those anxieties. And that gave me all these tools to use to overcome those those discomforts. And, um, and, and this is fairly recent that I've been working on that um, because when, um, I'm actually divorced now. Um, I was married to a wonderful girl um, and we ended up divorcing because of um, just a difference in personality and characters. And we tried couples counseling and it didn't really solve anything. And it was just clear that we were not the right match for each other. And so, um, but in that marriage, I experienced more anxiety than I had the entire rest of my life. And so I worked to understand that anxiety. And part of that was also because as my anxiety would flare, so would my same-sex attraction. And in fact, um, before me and my wife at the time um, got married, actually before we really started seriously dating, I told her everything that she needed to know, including the SSA and the pornography addiction. And she was she was um, very accepting of all of that. Um, She had a moment of pause about the SSA, and she asked me to leave the room, and she prayed about it, and then she asked me to come back in. She said, the Spirit said, it'd be all right. Um, Quite truly, the SSA was not any part of why we divorced. Um, It really was just our differences. And I'm sure there's some people who might have wondered If the SSA was part of why we got divorced, but it it wasn't. So with that anxiety, I I had to get used to telling my wife, hey, I'm having a hard time. I am feeling uh, triggered. I'm feeling um, these same-sex attractions really strongly right now. And I'm feeling insecure. And I had to be vulnerable and I had to be honest and I had to be open. And it was hard. Because I didn't like her to know that stuff was going on with me because it made me feel just small and weak. You know, as the guy, you have to be strong and you have to be you have to be the one that has it held together so that you can be able to, to be there for her when she needs you. But there were so many times where I just felt like I couldn't be that strong one and that I was weak and I was broken and I was fragile. And that was hard. That was really hard for me because I didn't like the idea that I couldn't be there for her. And there were times where I would just put aside my feelings and take care of hers. And that's just kind of an automatic thing that I developed. But I didn't really give myself a chance to accept that I felt insecure and to be okay with it. And I really struggled with that for a long time but as I was honest with her and as I was open with her it helped us grow closer together because it developed a trust that was a really sacred and special trust I could I could tell her I was having a hard time even if I wasn't going to tell anyone else she could know (laughs) well um while we were married, I decided to come out publicly. Um, I came out on Facebook and I got a lot of love and support from people and um, and then I started my podcast and I got a lot of love and support from people from that too and I actually um, was invited into a, a a Facebook messenger group of Men who were committed and devoted to the gospel and the covenant path, but who also experienced same-sex attraction, some were gay, some were bi, some were married with kids, but they all had the same perspective I did—that we didn't want to choose our attractions; we wanted to choose our covenants. We wanted to choose a temple marriage. So, after being afraid of associating with other guys that experienced SSA, because I didn't want to do North Star. I never did. I did not want to give myself the opportunity, and again, this is my perspective, um, but I I didn't want to give myself the opportunity to believe that SSA was part of my identity. I didn't want to go to conferences and conventions and these activities and programs that were for people who were gay or LGBTQ, um, all of those different names. Because I didn't want myself to feel like that was who I was. And I felt that if I could just allow myself to distance from that kind of labeling for myself, that it would help me feel more inclined to stay on the path that I chose. And I also just felt uncomfortable being around other guys with SSA, except for that friend in Provo just because I was worried there could be a mutual attraction or just something awkward or uncomfortable. There was a lot of unknowns and a lot of uncertainty. And I, I like to stay away from unknowns and uncertainty. So I instead avoided it at all costs. I avoided guys I was attracted to and being friends with them because I was afraid of those attractions to them. I avoided anything that would make me feel triggered I avoided certain movies that had attractive male leads, um, especially where I knew they were going to be shirtless in a scene or something like that, because that was really triggering for me. And I just kept allowing my fear to keep me away from things that were normal, were healthy. You know, uh, men have bodies. (laughs) That's a normal thing, and I, I didn't need to be afraid of that. But but I was. So this group. On Facebook that I joined, um, I finally gave myself that chance to associate with these guys and to be open and vulnerable with them. And oh my gosh, what a blessing that has been. I have never had such a supportive, understanding, and relatable group of people that I could connect with and it's it it's it's nice because i can relate to them so much more than i can to other friends and it's been such a blessing in my life to have that source of support when i'm you know having mental health challenges and when i'm having a hard time when my divorce was going on i came to them and i told them what was going on and they had my back and it's just been it's just been something i never Imagined could be so good. And it was also nice to associate with other guys who felt the same way about SSA and about the gospel as I did. They're all not into doing a pride march, not wearing the rainbow flag, and they don't knock other people who do, but they just don't feel like that's who they are and who they want to be. And that's how I feel too. So to associate with them and to not feel alone anymore in being that lone, Wolf, you know, conservative SSA member of the church. It was just eye opening for me. It helped me realize that, you know, if there's those guys there in this group, there's other guys out there who don't even know we exist yet and who might be looking for the same kind of support. I think that there are men who are experiencing same sex attraction that are afraid to come out because there's so much controversy. And so much hurt and so much confusion that they just don't wanna be part of that. And they don't wanna add to that. And they don't want people to misunderstand what they're going through. So they just kinda, for them, maybe suffer in silence. (laughs) So one of the reasons why I started my podcast is I wanted to represent those that choose to stay and who identify themselves as sons of God, because there's so many different voices, uh, so many different experiences. In, in being a member of the church with, uh, with uh, sexual orientation or, or gender identity. And because of there's those many experiences, there needs to be a variety of voices too. And my camp has always felt underrepresented because we see, um, you know, quote unquote, Mormon celebrities come out and say, oh, I'm gay. And then months or years later, leave the church. And it's hard to watch that because we believe they don't have to do that. We believe that if they want to stay in the church, they can, and there's a place for them and that they can be loved and they can have belonging and they don't need to feel just because they experience these attractions that their faith is not compatible with them either. So I guess I say all this to say that, I wish there were more stories in the limelight about people who stay than people who leave. Because both stories are true and real and happening, but only one side seems to get the book deals in Deseret Book and the news articles and the, and the, and the buzz in church culture. But we don't talk enough about those who see things a little bit differently. And I hope through the podcast I started that we can shine light on those stories and that we can show that there's more than one way to experience same-sex attraction in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
0: Um <laughs> your good father is on the screen as we're on your yeah, cell phone. Yeah, yeah, he's ironic. calling me. <laughs> um, I want to get Andrew to continue to talk um, and ask him some questions, but on behalf of all our listeners, just thanks for your courage for sharing your story. Of course. Um, you're very articulate. You're very self aware. You're very thoughtful. You've been on this road a long time. You have a long view of this space, <laughs> you know, because it's well over a decade and it's very helpful um, to listeners that are walking this road or allies, parents trying to help their kiddos. And you're very brave just to be honest about your, who you are. And yeah. Um, here's some of the, I want to ask you a question or two, and then I've got about six bullet points that I really loved. That I just want to circle back to, sure. and I asked you this before we went live, so I know the answer, but you listeners may be wondering, and I really appreciate being transparent. You've gone through a divorce and I will make a comment that my younger self would be aware of somebody in a mixed orientation marriage, quote unquote, which I define as one or both not being a hundred percent heterosexual and say. Well, I always want to find a backstory of why a marriage doesn't work. So I'm going to point to your same-sex attraction and that'll sort of, that'll be the answer for me. But my older self listeners would say, it's not my job. My job is not to figure out the backstory of why a marriage doesn't work. It's just to love both people. Maybe it's harder if one's a family member and I've got to support one, but straight marriages end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More um, two people are 100% heterosexual and we don't go down the sexual. So I think let's just give grace if a mixed orientation marriage ends and not try to make one person the hero and one person the villain. You said kind comments about your wife, your former wife, as you started that segment, you were transparent about the realities of your life. So I think you did the right things to um, make that marriage potentially work and it didn't. And that's, the reality of life for wonderful Latter-day Saints um, that do everything they can to make a marriage work, and it sometimes just doesn't work. And I don't think then we should feel like there's a backstory here, where you know, we I spend all my mental energy trying to figure it out. But the question is, um, do you want to marry again? Yeah, I do. I and obviously a woman. Buddy. Yes,
1: yes. I I want to marry a woman in the temple, and. Um, this experience, um, with, with divorce and and this ex-wife, it it didn't make me feel like it was the wrong road, a temple marriage to a woman. It just made me feel like it was the right idea, but the wrong person. And, you know, I've, I've, I've thought in times of greater weakness about, you know, Just trying to pursue a guy. But for the goals I have, for the desires of my heart, and for my devotion to Christ and his covenant path, I knew that if I even experimented with dating men, it wouldn't lead me to where I wanted to be. In fact, it could have the potential to hurt me and further um, create a haze on that path that I really want. And I just never gave myself the chance because I didn't want to, to, to date men. I just knew for me and my experience and my story that that was not something I wanted. I wanted friends that were guys, but I didn't, I didn't want to date any. And so I only dated women. And that's what I plan to continue to do.
0: I'm glad you answered that because my younger self might have said, well, you know, that are uh, others. I'm not sure I would have said that, to be honest, but others might be listening and say, well, Andrew, that's your signal that you ought to date men and that didn't work out. And I love the way you have a vision for your life, um, a grounding in the gospel that this is not been, okay, now I'm starting a new path. I'm still on the same path. Mm-hmm. And this is all part of my experience on this past. So I thought that was pretty thoughtful. Um, and now I'm going to go through my list of bullet points just real quickly. Um, what, I love you being honest about pornography use. And um, to me, the challenge with pornography, it's a sin. I think Andrew and I will both agree the sin. It's sort of the shame that comes with it and the separation from God. So you said something that I wrote down word for word. Sin is a moment. Repentance is a lifetime. Yeah. So I like things that don't say pornography and masturbation's okay, which you didn't. I like things that give context to give hope. And um, you talked about lapse. You talked about relapse. But one of my YSAs taught me about lapsed versus relapse. And for listeners who are working to solve porn, lapse is where you, you mess up. But you sort of, you, you maybe even have a journal that's just a private journal that you don't ever share with them, but you kind of write down the backstory of what happened in that lapsed. And you look at it as a positive experience saying, Yeah, I messed up, but what happened? And you look at it as three steps forward, one step backward. Relapse is where you just, in using that word, is just where you sort of give up and you binge and you just mm. don't care. Mm. And so I think there's some nuance between lapsed and relapsed. That's that interesting. Might be, I've never heard that before. And that's something a YSA taught me. Yeah. Um, and so some YSAs would use journals, not a not a journal that be passed down to posterity. Right. A very private journal. Um. Because sometimes when they could identify the lapse, they could identify the four days that led up to the lapse, and sort of why they were more vulnerable in that moment. And a lot mm-hmm. of the YSAs talk about this as a spiral staircase where every mess up, you're not back to square one. Satan wants you to feel like you're back to square one with every mess up and all the work you've done is for naught. Yeah, And you're just reburdening the Savior by repenting again. That's Satan's a way to keep you in the circle of shame and self-loathing. I Absolutely. think the Savior would say, no, you're one step o- closer to solving this. And I've already paid the price. Stay out of the shame road. Look forward with you know, with being positive. I even felt like the sacrament for some YSAs working to solve porn was more about, I asked them, would the sacrament, taking the sacrament help you or would not taking the sacrament help you and kind of help them decide that for themselves. Mm -hmm. Cause a lot of the sacrament in my mind is not a penalty for the past, unless that's a positive thing for you. It's more of your commitment to the future. Yeah. So there's some nuance there that no one taught me except the YSAs. because they were walking this road, but I will link in the show notes to since we talk a little bit about pornography, there's a chapter in my second book called Ending Pornography Use. Second book is called Improving Latter-day Saint Culture, and I'll just link to that in the show notes. Um, It's just everything that I would share with anybody working to put porn use behind and more parents or local leaders, and I'll just link to that free where you don't have to buy the book. You can just download the chapter. Um, I love this not accountable for your thoughts. I love, you know, just, and you just um, put that in the context of straight men that, you know, they're going to have, they're going to have thoughts towards women and you're going to have thoughts towards guys. And both of those were not accountable for our thoughts. Some would call them intrusive thoughts when they become a little bit awkward. I don't know what the right word, where you just Mm -hmm. clearly know that's not quite the thought I want to have in mind, but... Mm -hmm. I think that takes the shame out of the equation. and But your story of prayer to get to that point and receive personal revelation is really thoughtful, Andrew. And I, listeners, don't think, you know, when. that's what I try to normalize for people that aren't 100% heterosexual is how you feel. Be at peace with that. God's created you as you intended. You can't look in the mirror and think who you are is a mistake to God because that just— Create shame that may separate you from your relationship with God. Right. And your story is so much I had this great relationship with God and I've gone back to God over and over and over again. And God has been there with me. So I love that. I love that you went to therapy, but it wasn't to become straight. Right. It was um, to know how to navigate this. And I thought that was so thoughtful. And maybe 20 years ago, we would have sent you to therapy to. <laughs> To sort of undo this, mm-hmm. like something had gone. But I love that, and I thought that was really helpful. Just a thought on pornography for my listeners and our um, regular listeners. My old self would have said, "You're there's some backstory here. If we can unwind it, we really you're really straight." And so my younger self might even said, "Pornography has rewired you." And my older self would say, "Pornography is usually just a window into your sexual orientation versus something that changes it." I don't know if you're okay with that, but that's generally what I would say. That's not normalizing pornography right. use. Yeah. And I realize that pornography use can move, can move people into behavior um past just the thought stages, they're seeing things that are obviously inappropriate. But generally, my feeling is pornography is a window into someone's sexual orientation versus something that changes it. are you okay with that? It's your podcast. I want to make sure. <laughs> I'm not putting content no, in here. You're no, not.
1: Okay. You're, well, this this is your podcast, but <laughs> i I've seen as I've journeyed with mental health, with sexual orientation, with um, sexual psychology, lots of introspection. Um, I actually, for myself, have identified a pattern. Um. Because I'm attracted to men and women, um, the pornography that I would be drawn to would be representative of an unmet need. So for me, I knew what emotionally I needed based on what pornography I was tempted to look at. And that became a huge strength because I could say, oh, I'm feeling like I'm out of control. I'm feeling like. I am weak and powerless in this moment. So, what can I do to address these insecurities with God and try and bridge the gap that my brain thinks the pornography can help with?
0: Um, that was a terrific answer. I learned um, quite a bit from you, just in that really thoughtful, nuanced answer. And it was a, um. It comes back to this feeling that you're very (laughs) self-aware.
1: I've had a lot of time to be introspective. I
0: think that's a credit to you and just your core Christ-like attributes is you are very self-aware at 31 exactly who you are and exactly how God feels about you. And I think that makes the rest of your life possible in a really wonderful, thoughtful, healthy way. Um, Just going through my list of bullet points, um, listeners. (laughs) I love where you say this is my experience and my story, and that's a that's a note of grace that uh, most of our guests do on this podcast. And we have a range of stories here, listeners. And we're not trying to create one story. Um, and part of that goal is so that you can write your own story. If you're in the space of, I'm calling it today, being not 100% heterosexual. <laughs> that's a that's a label, I guess. That's what. But if you're walking this road, I think eventually you've got to write your own story. And often that will be in your 20s when you're coming to these forks in the road. Um, If you're in your teens or early 20s, I think you can just work on becoming the very best person you're going to be. But then you've got to write your own story like you're doing. And you're giving grace for others that are writing a different story, having a different experience. But I think that's a sign of just maturity. Another insight into you. Um, Part of that is you're writing your own story about your mission and being self-aware enough or seeking personal revelation, having enough confidence in your own story that you're going to write the missionary part of your service a little different than typical. Yeah. And I love the way you frame this up. Your whole life is your mission. Yeah. And the podcast you've started and being, you know, so I love that. And I, Listeners are, we do say, you know, hear him. <laughs> that's such a key part of our doctrine. And, you know, I just love that you are doing that. And that led you to a, a different feeling about your mission, but you felt love and support and belonging, even as someone that didn't serve a traditional mission. I think that's a great part of your story. Um, you are really good about taking shame. Um out of the equation so that didn't used to be and you're really brave the only it's brave people like you that share their stories that help other people feel not alone and not shame we sometimes i think this should be called the de-shaming podcast (laughs) um next thing i just share with uh i share at times that you didn't particularly you didn't bring up but if i were doing parenting all over again i would create a family culture where I would proactively tell my sons and daughters how I would respond to them if they told me about something that's going on in their life, like pornography use. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say our family rules, we don't look at porn, but if you look at porn, either intentionally or unintentionally, this is how I will respond to sort of take that unknown out of their brain. I don't think that's going to increase porn use listeners. I think it's going to increase the chance parents can walk the road of their kids I would also, and I never did this, I, and I don't have any LGBTQ kids, I would, in their teenage years when they're becoming aware of what this is, I would teach what the church teaches from the website about same-sex attraction. I would say, if you, you know, this is how I respond if you're not 100% heterosexual <laughs> or somewhere in the spectrum of mm-hmm. SSA, gay, trans mm-hmm. Um, it isn't a bad outcome to have a kid that's not 100% heterosexual. I think there shouldn't be fear as a parent. It may it makes your life more complicated, as you're honest yes, with. I don't want to minimize
1: that. Complication. But it's definitely. not
0: a bad... You Your kids that aren't 100% straight are awesome. And they're able to create Zion and build Israel and bring their gifts in a really positive way that so who you are is part of that. So just some thoughts, and that leads to this next thought. You know, I used to think about the gathering of Israel, and I think about your father. My my visual imagery of your father is him sitting at a desk in our apartment in Douglas on the Isle of Man. And it was on about—we were in a second story, so there's a view out over the— the city or the ocean. He's just sitting there studying his scripture. That's the only memory I have of two months together of your father. But part of Gathering of Israel was the work we did on the Isle of Man together. He was a terrific senior companion, took me under his arms and taught me so much about the gospel of Jesus Christ from a perspective of a convert. But the Gathering of Israel is that plus our members that are SSA or somewhere on the spectrum. And they are Israel. And they need to be gathered. It's good for them, but it's good for us. They bring unique gifts and contributions. I've been thinking about Jacob 5, the vineyard. And I'm thinking sometimes of, sometimes we don't see this part of the vineyard where there's LGBTQ, SSA, Latter-day Saints. They're kind of so far over the horizon. We don't know that they're there. We don't want to talk about them. Or we don't go there. Um, But I think we just need to mature as a church to recognize that there is good fruit there. There's good trees there. It's a beautiful part of the vineyard that is needed as we become a Zion-like people. And it's brave people like Andrew Davis um, sharing his story that help us create Zion. So that's kind of some mental changes I've had in my life as I think about um, SSA, Latter-day Saints, as not a different group of people, but our own people. Then I wrote down how very self-aware you are. And I wrote down vulnerability equals vulnerability and how you talked about that. And that's such an important concept is is you're vulnerable. And I love the way you've got community in this Facebook group you've mentioned. And I love the way you talked about even North Star doesn't quite work for you. And I think that's part of you saying, I'm writing my own story. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of different organizations around. There's a lot of different ways to do this. That I'm mature enough in who I am, comfortable enough in my own skin, my relationship was with God and the Savior, and my vision for my future in the church, that I am in a, not a place of fear where I'm sort of connecting with groups out of fear, out of validation. I'm connecting with groups on an intentional basis because it meets um, where I'm going, and it's a support group for that. And so I thought that was really really helpful and I love that group you've got and I love that there's still community there it's not like a hookup culture No no you're really careful to say that's not what's going on there No but there is a need for community and yeah. just people walking your same road it can give you support as you all have the same common goal Yeah and shared experiences shared experiences so those are some things but I'd love to just you know get you talking more about what's come to your mind either on anything I've said or just more thoughts that come to your mind you want to share with listeners? Sure. Um,
1: When I learned to look at pornography as a symptom of something deeper, I stopped feeling ashamed of it because I saw it as a cry for help. My brain was saying, I can't handle this right now, so I'm just going to go run into this thing. And that's what it is. Like, it, it, it's like been I love Clay Olson and what he's done with Fight the New Drug. Yeah, Because pornography is a drug. It's a dopamine high. It's extremely stimulating visually. And it is something people do to run away from something they don't want to think or feel. And I, and I'm not just saying that because that's that's what I did it for. And when when we're able to look at it as just another drug it becomes clear that, that that child who's dealing with it isn't doing it because they hate God or they hate their parents or or the guy who does it hate you know doesn't hate his wife it's that it fills a need that's so deep and intense they don't know how else to get it and they don't need to be judged or scorned or condemned or disciplined they need to be loved and watched out for and protected and cared for um when i was dealing with pornography as a kid my dad would take away my phone you know he would he would do all these things were very much like here's a punishment for what you did Because neither he nor I recognized that it was a cry for help. I thought I was just doing something I wasn't supposed to do. And I explained it to to my wife. I said, and I won't say her name, so I'll just say, honey. (laughs) When I have a relapse with pornography, when when I have an episode where I go back to it, I'm not doing it because I don't think you're pretty or that I hate you or I'm betraying you. I'm doing it because I'm sick and I'm trying to feel better. And I want you to treat this like I have just thrown up on the floor. Where instead of saying, what did you do with it? It's, I'm so sorry. You're not feeling well. How can I help you? Is there anything you need? You know, what, what's wrong? And, 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 it, environment of concern rather than an environment of scorn will help anyone dealing with that addiction to get out of that shame mindset and see it for what it is a symptom of something deeper so that that's i wanted to bring that up um and i guess one other thing i would love to share is. I just, I want to go back to what President Nelson said uh, in May. That the labels that we should identify ourselves that are most important. The first one is child of God. Because that puts everything else into perspective. And I'm not saying people shouldn't identify themselves as gay or lesbian or whatever it might be. I'm just saying in my experience, in my world, in my belief, those labels are not as important as our relationship with God. And that's why I named my podcast Sons of God, because I wanted to name it something provocative. I wanted to name it something marketing friendly, but I kept having a feeling that these little names that were quite clever and you know provocative were not the right message for the podcast. And I just kind of, you know, aside, like said to myself, well, what should I call it? And the spirit said, sons of God. Well, I didn't know as a spirit then. It took me weeks to realize the spirit said that because I thought about it and I was like, okay, what is this phrase? What it, why is it significant to me? And I flashed back to my days Uh, in Logan and in Provo, where I'd see a really attractive guy out in public. And I'd start to have those thoughts and that anxiety. And I'd say, he is a son of God, maybe even a fellow priesthood brother. And he and I are both sons of God. And I need to remember that. He's not an object. He's a person. And God loves him and God loves me. And he's my brother. Sons of God was my watchword to remind me to keep my thoughts pure about men and daughter of God about women. So I just wanted to share that idea, that idea of being a son of God. It just puts every other thing into perspective addiction, same sex attraction, mental illness. When we remember who we are and whose we are life is just a little bit easier
0: uh talk to those that would like to potentially be on your podcast how did they they find you yeah (laughs) so um
1: those would be who would want to be on the podcast um i do have a facebook page for sons of god and i do post episodes there i'll be honest with the recent events in my life i have had a lot of trouble getting back into all the work on the podcast. Um, but I will be picking it up soon. Uh, so there, it's not fully up to date, but if they send a message to the Facebook page, um, that will be uh, a good way to get in touch with me. Um, I will be opening other channels for communication eventually. I just haven't gotten to it yet. um, But, uh, also talking to someone who has been on the podcast or who knows me personally would be a good way to do it too. But, um, yeah, just messaging the page. Um, I will be creating a Gmail account for the podcast. People can email directly to, I just haven't gotten to that yet, but, um, and there will be a website for the podcast as well. So, um, I'll make those announcements um, on my podcast when those come
0: out. So if people
1: want to listen and follow along, uh, eventually there will be more channels to
0: communicate with. And listeners will link to the Facebook page that Andrew talked about in the show notes. Um, I love the, your backstory the naming of the podcast. That's terrific, Andrew. And I love President Nelson's talk where he talked about our three labels. Yeah. Um, child of God, which you mentioned, child of the covenant, mm-hmm. disciple of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and I agree with President and Support him. I also agree. What I what I felt and what you said is that it, he didn't say we can't take on other labels. Um, we have Swahili wards. We have Tongan <laughs> branches. We have lots of labels around yeah. community under those labels, and so sometimes on social media. I'll see somebody come out, identify as SSA, and someone will sort of pounce on them saying, no, you can't do that, as a Latter-day Saint. And I think that just creates shame. And I think it's more of an expression of the person saying that they're uncomfortable around this topic or someone who um, experiences same-sex attraction. So I think as we mature as a church and we think of the whole vineyard and the gathering of Israel, We recognize there's people, Latter-day Saints, that aren't 100% heterosexual. And that's a good thing. (laughs) Just like there's Latter-day Saints that are 100% heterosexual. That's a good thing. They're both equally good things. And um, that's just part of becoming a Zion-like people is to support each other and love each other equally. So um, I, I love you put another awesome segment about pornography in there about just what was going on there. I don't think you were getting up one morning and saying, what can I do to displease God? No. <laughs> These are the 10 things on the list. I can shoplift at the local convenience store in Connecticut. I can run red lights. I can look at porn. I'll, so I just think most of the, this goes back to my experience of the YSAs. These are terrific men and women that are deeply committed to gospel, want to do the right thing. The core of them is so good. But this is the way you framed it up. And one therapist helped me, listeners, to look at as like the iceberg concept is what the, you know, what's going on above the above top of the iceberg is porn use. And if we just focus in on that, a lot of the YSAs could kind of white knuckle it. But it was more sort of what you invited us listeners to do is to get to the bottom of the iceberg and understand what's really going on down there. And sometimes that took a therapist, sometimes it took a therapy journal or a journey. Um, Support group, but often it's the things you talk about: stress, anxiety. It's coping, and it's sort of then becomes a cycle. And
1: if it's not porn, it's video games, it's food, it's yeah, any number. Social media is a big one. I mean, it it is something. If it's not pornography, it's going to be something, and we need to care more about what is causing that than what the symptom is, because then that that person is never going to get the help that they need.
0: Exactly. So that was. You know, the way you're talking about it, the things that I've learned, it just is the path to healing. And um, so hopefully some of that's been helpful to you if you're working to put porn use behind you or you're helping somebody. Um, But the shaming comments I sometimes hear in church and about people viewing porn. Yeah, marriages can end because of that. Lives can change. Neither of us are taking that off the table. But words matter, and the way we frame this up creates a culture potentially where, in our families and our wards, people open up if they're working to solve this.
1: And for the record, the the addiction was also nothing to do with the divorce. Some people might be wondering that, and, and it was not related to that at all.
0: And yeah, I totally. I'm glad you put that clarified that. I've read this quote before, listeners, and it's a Bernay Brown quote. Oh, she's awesome. Fitting is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted. Belonging on the other doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. So when I speak on this subject, all right, many SSA members exhaust themselves trying to fit it in. Belonging allows our LGBTQ SSA friends to be who they are and accepted who they are. Coming out usually isn't about leaving the church. It's about being authentic helping to belong in our wards of families, but not everyone needs to come out. It's a personal decision. There may be some, and you create space for that in the way you're letting people have their own experience, but there may be some listeners that just don't feel the impression to come out. But I would gently invite you to come out to yourself and get peace with yourself and to come out to God and find out how God feels about you and and sort of take that, you know, potential shame out of you as you're on your journey. Uh, more, that's all I've got on my list. Um, more thoughts, any other thoughts that come to your mind, Andrew?
1: I think that's it. I've been happy to be here. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be a guest
0: on your show. Well, on behalf of our listeners that are a lot that are deeply moved by your story and it's, it's a needed story. And I hope we hear more stories like you. You're really brave. You're really authentic. You're vulnerable. You're real. You're comfortable in your own skin. You're still a Pretty young guy, you got a great <laughs> career going. You've got a great life ahead of you. Um, you give me hope for the future of our church, of the world, and um, God loves you, Andrew, and you know that. Yeah. Um, and He loves all of His children. And I just grateful for men, brave men, and brave women, and others that step forward to share their stories. I love that you started a podcast, and and um, hope and pray that it continues to you add. Um, additional um, podcast guests over time and build out your social media as you're just making your way forward. So we just invite you to act on the impressions you felt in your circle of influence. If you're an ally or a parent, or if you're in this space that this, that Andrew's story will help you to feel more hope. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give somebody else is hope for their future and peace for today. And that's the, that's, One of the greatest gifts of Christ, but often Christ blesses us through other people sharing their stories that help us not to feel alone and feel like, okay, there's somebody like me, Andrew Davis, had the guts to just share his story. (laughs) And I now have some more peace and hope in my life, and I don't feel alone. So thank you, Andrew Davis. Thank you, my former missionary companion, Elder Jameson Davis, for bravely joining the church. I mean your teenage years serving a mission, all that you do in your life. And this is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn and Love.